And good morning to you. I'm Pastor Dave Mitchell, and uh, it's good to be with you once again, and we're excited for this new year. Happy New Year to you, and hopefully it's a great uh, start, uh, one week into it, and excited for what God is going to do. As you've been hearing, we're having a new series called The Chronicles of the Kings. We're going to look at all the kings of the Old Testament, and uh, I want to just give some background information before we get into the text and show you something before we get there as well. Here is a map sort of shows a scene of where we're going to be discussing these territories. These kings, it may seem like Old Testament means boring or, uh, you know, so arcane that you just sort of can't get into it. These are fascinating stories. If somebody made a movie about each of these kings, we wouldn't be able to show it here because there's so much about it that is hard and difficult to experience. But we're looking at these territories in the nation of Israel, and as it expanded, there are territories that are surrounding Israel as well. There is a Moab and Ammon and, and the Syrian or Aramean uh, territories, and all of these are, are battle zones that will take place, and you'll see some of that as well. And then also on the outline that you have available for you in the uh, bulletin here, I want to show and draw your attention to, you can't hardly read it on the screen there probably, but at least on the outline you can. I want to show you, these are the kings, we're not going to look at every single one of them, but you certainly get a flow. You get a sense as to where is the Old Testament going, and these aren't just sort of uh, devotional thoughts that are sort of sporadically spread around. These are historical documents that really take us in the story of God's unfolding in the nation of Israel. As you see, as we begin in King Saul, and then next Sunday we'll talk about Saul, David, and Solomon, but then we'll get into these kings that probably most of you have, uh, maybe many of you I would say, have not really been acquainted with and do not know a lot about them. But you notice that the kingdom then divides. There's the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. And uh, God had a way of ruling over these kings and these kingdoms to let them know that I'm a gracious God, I'm a loving God, I want to care for you, I want you, you to have a good life, but there is a limit to my grace. And then he allowed the Assyrians to come in in 722 B.C. and wipe out the northern tribes, the northern Israel. You see all those kings were evil kings. And then there are the southern tribes, and it was around 586 B.C. Babylon came in and destroyed what is referred to as Judah, which is Judah and Benjamin, the two tribes in the south. We're going to look at some of these kings that are in there, and they're fascinating stories we want you to be well acquainted. We want you to be a, a, a literate group in terms of biblical knowledge, but we also want to be conforming to the person of Christ, who is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And so our desire is that we submit to Him as the King that would rule over us. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at Saul, but I want to give you a fascinating video. Now, it's about eight minutes long. We don't normally like to show eight-minute videos here because we know that uh, you could sit home and watch TV instead. We want you to see this because it's so good. There's a lot of information, but I want to give you this flow of the first and second Sam, first and second Kings, the flow of the history. You're going to be tested on this, so I hope you take notes, because there's going to be a lot of details. It'll feel like a little bit long, but it's fascinating as it fast goes through, fast-paced, really, overview of the Kings in the Old Testament. So take a look at this video, and uh, then I'll come back up. 
the books of First and Second Kings, although they're two separate books in our Bibles, they were originally written as one book telling a unified story that continues on from the book of Samuel that came before it. So David has unified the tribes of Israel into a kingdom, and God promised that from his line would come a messianic king who would establish God's kingdom over the nations and fulfill the promises made to Abraham. So the book of Kings tells the story of the long line of kings that came after David, and none of them lived up to that promise. In fact, they run the nation of Israel right into the ground. The book is designed to have five main movements. The story begins and ends focus on Jerusalem, first with Solomon's reign and the construction of the temple, and then in this last section ending with Jerusalem's destruction and Israel's exile to Babylon. And the story leading up to this tragedy is what makes up the center three sections, which explain how Israel split into two rival kingdoms, how God tried to prevent the corruption of Israel by sending the prophets, and how exile became the unavoidable consequence of Israel's sin. The book opens with two chapters about the kingdom passing from the aging David to his son Solomon. And David's final words to Solomon, they're very similar to those of Moses and Joshua and Samuel to the people. It's a call to remain faithful to the commands of the covenant and to give allegiance to the God of Israel alone. But David's words ring somewhat hollow here because David and Solomon then go on to conspire how they're going to consolidate this new kingdom through a whole series of political assassinations. It's not off to a great start. Solomon's brightest moment comes when he asks God for wisdom to lead Israel. And he even completes David's dream to make a temple for the God of Israel. Here the story actually stops and describes the design of this temple in detail, just like the tabernacle design in the Torah. There's all these gold and jewels and depictions of angels and fruit trees. It's all symbolism echoing back to the Garden of Eden. It's the place where heaven and earth meet, where God's presence dwells with his people. But no sooner does Solomon finish the temple that he makes some really horrible choices and the kingdom falls apart. He starts marrying the daughters of other kings, hundreds of them, for political alliances. And then he adopts their gods and introduces the worship of those gods into Israel. Solomon then accumulates huge amounts of wealth. He builds a huge army. He even institutes slave labor for all of his building projects. Now, if you go back to the Torah and look at God's guidelines for Israel's kings in Deuteronomy 17, Solomon is breaking every one. So by the time that he dies, Solomon resembles Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, more than he does his father David. The next section of the book opens with Solomon's son, Rehoboam, acting just like his father. It's a very sad story of greed and lust for power. He tries to increase taxes for slave labor. And under the leadership of Jeroboam, the northern tribes reject this. They rebel and secede and form their own rival kingdom. And so now in the story, you have the southern kingdom, Judah, centered in Jerusalem with kings from the line of David. And now this new northern kingdom called Israel, whose capital will be Samaria eventually. Jeroboam also goes on to build two new temples to compete with Solomon's temple in the south. He puts a golden calf in each one to represent the God of Israel. The connection to Exodus 32 and the golden calf, it's all quite explicit. From this point on, the story goes back and forth from north to south, tracing the fate of both kingdoms. Each one had about 20 successive kings, and as the author introduces each king, he evaluates their reign by a few criteria. Did they worship the God of Israel alone, or did they promote the worship of other gods? Did they deal with idolatry among the people? And 
Did they remain faithful to the covenant like David, or do they become corrupt and unjust? And according to these criteria, the author finds no good kings in northern Israel, zero for 20. And then in southern Judah, only eight out of 20 get a positive rating, which connects to another huge purpose in this book, and that's to introduce the role of the prophets, key figures in Israel's history. So in the Bible, prophets were not fortune tellers. Rather, they spoke on behalf of the God of Israel, and they played the role of covenant watchdogs, which means they called out idolatry and injustice among the kings and the people. They were constantly reminding Israel of their calling to be a light to the nations, that they should obey the commands of the Torah, and so the prophets challenged Israel to repent and follow their God. In these center sections for each king, God then raises up prophets to hold them accountable. And the most prominent prophets are the northern ones, Elijah and his disciple Elisha, right here in the center of the book. Elijah was a wild man of a prophet living out in the desert, and his arch nemesis was the northern king Ahab and his Canaanite wife Jezebel. Together, these two had instituted the worship of the Canaanite god Baal over Israel. And so in a famous story, Elijah challenged 450 prophets of Baal to a contest to see which god was real. So they both build altars and pray to their gods, but only the god of Israel answers with fire. After this, Ahab uses his royal power to murder an Israelite farmer and then steal his family's vineyard. And Elijah again confronts Ahab's injustice and he announces the downfall of his house. Elijah eventually passes the mantle of his prophetic leadership to a young disciple named Elisha who asks for two times the authority of Elijah. And what's fascinating here is how the author, he's recounted seven miraculous feats for Elijah and then he offers stories of 14 acts of power from Elijah. Both prophets were clearly remarkable men, and they played the same role, confronting Israel's kings for idolatry and injustice. And ultimately, they were unsuccessful in turning Israel back from apostasy. In the next section, the northern kingdom is rocked by a bloody revolution started by a king named Jehu, who destroys Ahab's family. And although Jehu was at first commissioned by God, his violence just gets out of control, and it creates the spiral of political assassinations and rebellions from which Israel never recovered. Coup follows coup after Jehu, and each king follows other gods, allows horrible injustice. It all leads up to 2 Kings chapter 17. The the big bad empire of Assyria swoops down and takes out the northern kingdom altogether. In the capital city of Samaria, it's conquered and the Israelites are exiled and scattered throughout the ancient world. Now, chapter 17 is key. The author stops the story and offers this prophetic reflection on what's just happened. He blames the downfall of the northern kingdom on the idolatry and covenant unfaithfulness of Israel and its kings. And so God has allowed them to face the consequences of their decisions. The final movement of the book tells the story of the lone southern kingdom. And here we meet some very heroic kings like Hezekiah, who trusts God when the armies of Assyria come knocking on Jerusalem's door. Or Josiah, who discovers this lost scroll of the Torah in the temple. So he starts reading it. He's convicted and he institutes religious reforms to remove idolatry and Canaanite influences from the land. But... Judah is just too far gone. The king, right in between these two, Manasseh, he's the worst by far. So he not only introduces the worship of idol statues into the Jerusalem temple, he also institutes child sacrifice. And so God sends prophets to say, the time is up, 
Israel has reached the point of no return. The final chapters tell the story of the Babylonian Empire coming to invade Jerusalem, destroy the temple, and carry the people and the royal line of David off into exile. And so the story ends leaving us wondering, is God done with Israel? Is he done with the line of David? Well, the final paragraph zooms about 40 years forward into the exile, and it tells a very odd story. It's about Jehoiakim, a descendant from David, who would have been king if he was back in Jerusalem. And the king of Babylon releases him from prison and invites him to eat at the royal table for the rest of his life, and the book ends. So it's not much, but it's a story that gives a glimmer of hope that God has not abandoned the line of David. So the question now is, how is God going to fulfill his promises to Abraham, to David? How is he going to bless the nations and bring the messianic kingdom? And to answer those questions, you have to read on into the wisdom and the prophetic books. But for now, that's the book of Kings. So there you go. I'm sure you got it all. You, probably, you could probably recite that over lunch this afternoon and uh, get it all together. If you'd like to look at that again, uh, we'll have a link on our website to allow you to go there. In fact, this is a wonderful resource. It's a, it's a great day we live in in terms of technology and video and, and uh, the Internet with biblical truth because uh, all of these uh, storylines are developed for every book of the Bible. And so if you'd like to get kind of the big picture of the books, First and Second Kings, there's First and Chronicles one as well, uh, you can kind of have that sense of it. And so here is the story that we look at today. We're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 8, and I have uh, encourage you to have in your hand the Bible that is either in the chair rack in front of you or the one that you brought from home. If you don't have one at home, you can take the one that's in the Bible in front of you. As we look at this uh, fascinating tale of when the nation of Israel chose to have a king, they wanted to have a king. We'll look at some of the reasons for that and whether it's good or it's bad. But in 1 Samuel chapter 8, let me read a little bit of the text here. And it came about that when Samuel was old, he's probably 65, 70 years old, Samuel was the judge. He comes off of the judges, the book of judges that precede that. He was the one that sort of ruled the land. They would go to him for insight and wisdom and counsel and leadership. And uh, Samuel is uh, really fading. He is old at this point. And in those days, they didn't have good pension programs, and so he just continued on. And it says, And it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. So the idea is you keep passing it on. Sadly, though, it says, Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and uh, the name of his second was Abijah. And they were judging in Beersheba, which is the southern part of the nation of Israel. And his sons, however, did not walk in the ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like the nations. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when, he said, when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Listen, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since this day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now then, listen to their voice. However, 
you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. I'll talk about that in just a moment. Here is the setup. What we need to understand is sort of the big application. God gives us the Old Testament not so we can kind of get into the details and sort of know things. He gives us the Old Testament so we can learn from those things. There's a couple times in the New Testament it says, read the Old Testament, study the Old Testament, and learn how God works. Let that be a lesson as to what God will do for you if you live the way they live. And it could be good or it could be for bad. And so we're going to learn from this lesson. This is the lesson of choosing the right king. Now, we're not literally choosing a king. We're not literally choosing someone who's going to rule over us in the sense of an earthly king. But we do have kings. We have those things that rule over us and guide us. And I noticed three character traits of vulnerability, of getting something or someone to be in a power place in our lives. The danger is that we have influences in how we live our lives by those influences that are not from God. And that was part of the vulnerability of the nation of Israel at this point and stage of their lives. They wanted someone that looks like a king like all the other nations. Here are the three vulnerabilities when we are at risk of being influenced in the wrong way. Vulnerability number one. When there is a failure to pass on what we believe to the generations that follow us. If we don't have a heart for the generations that follow us, if we don't have an investment of the younger people than us, if we don't spend our time and effort saying to our children and our grandchildren and to those that are those ages that these are the things that we learn and we want you to acquire them as well then we're vulnerable to passing on this very fluid belief system in Christ as our king. Notice again Samuel. And it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his son's judges over Israel. Now, I don't know what kind of a father Samuel was. I'm not here to prejudge that, but I'm not real pleased with how his children turned out. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. There was a failure on Samuel's part somewhere in the scheme of life where whatever his priorities were, it wasn't an investment in his children. Or he invested a lot, as so many of you do, but somehow there was a hardness of heart of the children. All I know is that there is a vulnerability. If we're not in a successful phase of passing on who we are in Christ to those that are younger than us. And as a church, one of the things I've been saying about Calvary Church for many months, if not years, is that what we need to do is to grow younger. We need to invest in youth. We need to invest in ways that passes on who we are to those that will follow us. Because it's just a matter of time that we're like Samuel, and we're old and then we die. And I want to know that there are those that will follow behind us. The vulnerability of choosing the wrong king is because we don't invest in the younger generations. Secondly, the vulnerability, number two, is that I want to align myself with the values of a world system, the cultural values that's surrounding me. When I see what the world says should be taking place, and I say, I'd like to be more like that. 
It says in the text, this is where this point comes from, in verses 4 and 5, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you've grown old. Your sons do not walk in your ways. See the vulnerability there? If your children can't follow along, then we're not going to follow along. And now appoint us a king for us to judge us like all the other nations. We want to be like those around us. When my mindset becomes where I see the way the world is going and I surrender what I know that God wants for me, that is like Samuel passing on his belief and his faith to his children and they acquiring it, so that I say, therefore, that's good enough for us. It worked in the book of Judges sort of well, but I want God to be my king. The problem was they didn't want God as their king anymore. They wanted to be like the nations around us. And here is where we come as a church. This is part of the burden that we carry, that there are a lot of things that happen in the cultural values around us. And it's really easy for us to sort of slip and slide and to accommodate, compromise, and be enticed by those things, that they become the influence in our hearts and our lives, not Jesus Christ and His Word. So vulnerability number two is where I begin to align myself with the values of the cultures around us, and I begin to surrender what I've always believed to accommodate them. And I'm going to be more specific as we go along. But the vulnerability number three is this. When I forget all the good things God's done for me, it's really easier for us to slip into this mindset of negativity in what have you done for me lately. Notice what God says in 1 Samuel 8, 7, and 8. He says, like all the deeds which they have done since the days that I... Notice what he reminds Samuel of. Since the days I brought them up from Egypt even to this day... It's a subtle reminder by God to Samuel, really to all of us, I've done a lot for you. I've been there for you. I helped you cross the Red Sea. I wiped out the Egyptians. I wiped out Pharaoh. I helped you cross the Jordan River. I've done miracle after miracle after miracle of preserving you and caring for you, guiding you, providing for you. And now here you stand before me and say, we don't want you to be our king anymore. We want a human king, not a divine king. It's when our hearts get so hardened and we become so forgetful and we're so blinded to all that God has done for us. I know that I have to constantly remind myself, when I start griping and complaining about things that I don't like about my life, and I don't have that much really to complain about, but sometimes I just get downright grumpy. And I stop and think, oh, Lord, Look at this home that I have, except for the pool. It's really great. (laughs) Look at the cars I have. Look at the family that I have. Look at the health that I enjoy. Look at all these things. Why, Why do I have this negativity when you have blessed me beyond anything I ever thought I would ever have at this stage of life? When I compare myself to 40 years ago when I began this kind of work, and I look at where I'm at today, I say, God, you've been you've been so good to me. I have no reason to complain against God. And yet it's so easy to forget the things that I do have because I'm thinking about the things I don't have. I begin this sort of a spiral down of 
not remembering his gracious kindness of the salvation that I gained, his salvation, way back when I was age 12 by having parents that loved Jesus and they wanted me to love Jesus like they loved Jesus and they passed that on to me. I say, Lord, why do I, why do I dismiss that as insignificant when I'm caught up in what I don't like about the way my life is going today? So God wants us to remember the good that he has done, because when I begin to be negative on the things that I don't have, then I spiral down and say, God, I'm not sure I want you as my king anymore. I'm going to form my own kingship to rule my own life. Those are three vulnerabilities. When I align myself with the cultural values that are out there, when I forget all the good things that God has done for me, when I don't pass on and have a heart to passion to say to the generations that follow me that it's not about me anymore, but it's about what I can give to you now, when I lose those things, I'm vulnerable to saying, God, I don't need you anymore. I've moved on from you, God. And that's why God said to Samuel, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're forsaking me by asking for this king. And I don't want to reject God because I'm pursuing things that are not according to his design, his very best for me. Now, here's where I turn the page. What must we do to make Christ our king? Let me learn from this passage here. These are important things that that helps us to reacquaint ourselves with where God wants us to be. And the outline you've got for you, here's the first thing that I noticed that God gave to us. I need to get to the point where I confess those failures where, God, I am aligning myself with the cultural values. I'm, I'm looking out there for things that satisfy my life, but I know they're not necessarily from you. I need to confess those. I need to be honest with those. Here's the beginning of the year. As Melissa was saying, it's a time for resolutions. It's a time for me to, to sort of step back and say, you know what? These are the priorities that I had. These are the areas that I'm tempted in, but I know they're not from you. They're not your best. I want to confess where I've been wrong. Confess those and commit to serve him. I love this passage. And jumping ahead from 1 Samuel 8, a few chapters, four chapters to chapter 12, that's what God says to the people. Samuel said to the people, Do not fear. You have committed all this evil, yet you do not turn aside, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. You must not turn aside, for then you will go after the futile things which cannot profit or deliver, because they are futile. For the Lord God will not abandon his people. You see, the Israelites began to feel a little conviction. God's not my king. I've rejected him as king. I've forsaken him as king. And now God, Samuel, you go to Samuel, I I don't know what to do about that. And here is what, so gracious is God. Samuel says, look, okay, you chose to go with a king that forsakes God as your king. Here's what I'll do for you. You confess that as a sin. You turn from that. Don't turn to the right or the left, but you focus on me and align yourself with my values and make sure you know it. I love this little phrase here. I want you to not go after the futile things which cannot profit. Don't go after the futile things that cannot profit. Here's a couple of things that uh, occur to me from that text. That number one, God is gracious and he will not abandon us. I don't care what anybody has ever done. 
There is no sin so great, there is no failure so miserable that God's grace will not overcome and want to draw you back. So that much we know. No matter what we did in 2016, God says, I want to graciously welcome you home. And then secondly, identify the futile things which cannot profit you. What are the futile things? Here's a great text that I love from Hebrews chapter 12. It says this, Therefore, since we have a, so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, we've got people who are always watching us on earth and in heaven for that matter, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Now, what I love about that is it aligns itself nicely with this Old Testament passage where he says, I don't want you to pursue the futile things that have no profit. And then the author of Hebrews says, I don't want you to get caught up. I want you to lay aside the encumbrance. I want you to lay aside the sin which so easily entangles. An encumbrance was literally something that weighs me down. And Paul, or whoever the author was, might have had in mind an, a person in a race and I know I like to cycle on my bike, and, and I've got sort of a, the Chevrolet model of, of bicycles. But some of the bikes that I see out there, in fact, I uh, stopped and helped a guy yesterday who had a flat tire, and I couldn't help him. Uh, but I looked at his bike, and I thought, that's, that's the ultimate bike. This guy's a triathlete. And uh, I was trying to help him change his tire. But I looked at all the components in the bike. And every component has so many little degrees of weight. And you want to get rid of all that weight so you can ride as fast as you can. It's one of the reasons Ron Rogalski is a, is a faster bike rider. Because he has lighter wheels than me. It has nothing else to do with fitness. <laughs> and so we want to have the lightest elements on our bike so that we can ride as fast as we can. And I thought if I only lost 30 pounds, that might help too. What God is saying is that there are things that weigh us down, not just on a road bike or a race, but there are things that weigh us down. And secondly, there are sins which so easily entangles us. The word entangle is a Greek word that means I stand with something that surrounds me. I am held captive by this sin. We might today refer to it as an addiction. There are sins that have held me captive, that are holding me back. I know that there is a big problem with pornography for a lot of people. That's an entanglement. That holds you back. You will never have the kind of marriage you want to have if you're into pornography. You will never have the kind of life that God calls you to have if you're into pornography. That's just one sin amongst many that entangles us, that surrounds us, that captivates us. And so there are encumbrances and there are entanglements. Encumbrances are not necessarily sins in and of themselves. Sins are sins. You're missing the mark. You're, you're completely falling short. Now, on the outline, I've given you what I think are some encumbrances. That uh, sins we should obviously recognize, but I know that not everybody confesses their sins. But here are some encumbrances that can weigh us down, that can exhaust us, that can sap energy that can take us away and distract us from fixing our eyes upon Jesus, allowing Jesus to be the ruler of my life, the king of my life. They become the influence. They become the authority. They become the things that persuade me into a direction that is 
less than Christ as king. For example, you notice on the outline that is there uh, before you, these items, gadgets, entertainments, and electronics, those things that I can spend a lot of time with, and they can be very good and helpful, like the video we just showed, we love those things. But where does it become an encumbrance where Christ is no longer the Lord? Status, where I'm going after jobs and promotions and success. And I think that's where, that's where it is at. That I will forsake like Samuel. He was so dedicated to his job that he left behind his children. And they weren't walking with the Lord. In what way does status and job and promotions override the lordship of Jesus? Possessions, cars, houses, family, kids. I didn't put motorcycles in there because they don't count. But those things, see, we always, we always think we're the exception, you know. But possessions, those things that I'm constantly accumulating over the years. I look at all this stuff in our house, and I think, oh, my goodness, if Joy and I die suddenly, our kids are going to curse us for all the stuff they've got to figure out what to do with. But the possessions that I can pursue those things, hobbies, sports, fitness, dancing, movies, they can sap me. You know, I've had people, I had a guy come to me, actually I had a woman knock on my front door one time, and she said, you need to come and deal with my husband. I said, well, why? What, what's wrong with your husband? This is another place, another time, another city. And I said, what's wrong with your husband? He says, he's playing softball. I thought, well, I play softball. Uh, what's, what's wrong with that? He's always playing softball. He's on all these leagues. And every weekend, Friday night, Saturday, Sunday, he's gone playing softball. He's a really good softball player, and I played on a team with him. And I was amazed how good he is. But... He had reached the point, and she had reached the point where softball had replaced her, and softball had replaced the Lord. I actually was with him when he prayed to receive Christ as his Savior. And I should have done more to help him know what it means to have the Lordship of Jesus in his life rather than softball. So these are encumbrances. I'm not saying that baseball or softball or sports or hobbies or or all these other things, uh, fitness, cow fit, whatever, they aren't wrong in and of themselves. They become wrong when they become an encumbrance that takes me away from the lordship and his rule and the priorities of biblical Christianity where it's lived out in my life for me personally, for the family members that are in my life, for the children that I may have or may not have, for the people that are surrounding me, for the church commitment and service to him. These all become encumbrances or vanity, appearance and clothes and makeup and fashion and food drinking too much, eating too much. And right after Christmas and New Year's, that's a great one to bring up. Thank you very much. These are things that become encumbrances to us where I'm looking to them for satisfaction, fulfillment, for feeling happy and good. And I've lost the focus of fixing my eyes on Jesus. And this is what Hebrews is saying. And this is what Samuel is saying to the people. You have pursued the futile things that are of no profit. What are the futile things in my life that have no eternal profit? And in what way do they take me from the lordship of Jesus Christ? 
And so we must turn and confess those things. Again, they're not necessarily wrong in and of themselves, but they become wrong when they take me from the lordship of Christ. And I better have discernment, and I better maybe even have a mentor that helps me to discern when those things have crossed the line. The second thing that I notice that we need to do is to not only confess those futile things that have no profit, those things that are encumbrances or sins that entangle us, but secondly, I need to recognize the cost of choosing the wrong king. Now, it's interesting that Paul, or the writer of, and it could have been Samuel, but the writer of 1 Samuel 8, he delineates what happens if you choose a king on earth. Notice these things that he says here. In 1 Samuel 8, 10, it says, So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who would ask of him a king. We forsake God. We want a human king. We want to be like the nations. Okay, here's what you get. This comes with a package deal. This will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. And I want to, I underlined in each of these verses the word take, T-A-K-E. Notice how often it says take, take, take. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands of fifties, and some to do his plowing, to reap his harvest, to make his weapons of war and equipment for chariots. He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your seed of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and unto yourselves he will become his servants. Then you will cry out to in that day because your king whom you have chosen for yourselves but for the Lord he will not answer you in that day. You will cry out because you will regret that you have taken him as king because he has taken from you all those things that are important. And what is fascinating to me is that that's why God gives us these Old Testament truths. He says, look, if you choose the wrong king, he's going to sap you of your life. He's going he's to take everything that is of value to you. He will control you. He will monopolize, uh, manipulate you. He will monopolize all of your life. He will have this mastery over you, and you will lose everything. That's why I think about this woman that knocked on my door and complained about her husband's softball playing. Well, it's just one story. It's one anecdote. But he sold out to the wrong king, and it became an encumbrance. What actually eventually turned into a sin that entangled him as they ultimately divorced. I think about that, and then he lost everything. That new king took from him all that was important to him, his family, his kids, and almost cost him his job. See, these are the things that happen when you invest in the wrong king because that king will come back to bite you. Satan loves for us to have the wrong person ruling our lives because he will take from us those things that are important. So remember this passage because it's a passage that teaches what happens 
when we have the wrong ruler in our lives. It just takes and takes and takes, and it saps us. We have less energy. We become apathetic. We become more complaining. We're more negative. We're spiraling down. It saps our hearts and our souls because we don't have the right priorities in the right place and the right king to rule us. We don't have the resources of a God Almighty so that when we pray to the God of the king of the, of the world, God himself, Jesus Christ, but the Lord will not answer you on that day. That's heartbreaking. We want to help people avoid those catastrophes. And I could tell you, and because I, I can't say it here, if I ever have another church after you, I can talk about them there. But no, I'm not going to do that. I would never do that. Let's do it here. But I could tell you so many stories of people that we try to help here at Calvary Church who come to us long after they have chosen the wrong king. And that false king has taken from them so many things of value. And then it's so hard to get them back. Once you lose so many things that are of value, like a family, a spouse, a children, a job, finances, because the encumbrances and the sins that entangle, the futile things that have no profit, once those things take kingship of our lives, it is so hard to get back all the stuff that's been taken from us. It's hard to repair that. But God says, come back to me. First Samuel 12, you come back. I'll never abandon you. Remember that promise. He wants us to come back. Rather, when you invest in Christ as king, there's a whole other set of values that God calls us to. I'm going to turn over to Luke chapter 12 where Jesus is challenging us in the lordship of his life, of our lives, the lordship of Christ. It's in Luke chapter 12, for example. I'm going to start reading um, verse 27 of Luke 12. Here's Jesus talking about him being your king. This is the kind of king we want. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor they spin. But I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow, is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, you men of little faith? Do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink. Do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek. See, that's the way the world operates when you don't have Christ as king. But your father knows you need these things, but seek his kingdom. Let Jesus be your king. Seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. He's not going to take them from you. He's going to bless you with them. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. So what's the response when Christ is my king? Verse 33. So sell your possessions. Give it to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out. Invest in those things that last forever, not those things that last for a day. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief thief comes near nor moth destroys. Just the antithesis, the opposite of futile things that have no profit. Encumbrances, sins that entangle us, that take us nowhere. 
that are dead ends. So Jesus says, I want to be your king. Then a little bit later on, he goes on and says even more and more strongly. He challenges us. I'm going to read in Luke 14, 33. He says, so then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Wow. Remember the king in the Old Testament, I'm going to take your wives, I'm going to take your children, I'm going to take your property, I'm going to take your vineyards, I'm going to take all these things, your service, I'm going to take them all. Well, Jesus says, wait a second, I want to be your king. I'm not letting you off the hook. But when the earthly king rules us, the wrong king rules us, it becomes a responsibility and obedience that is forced. When Jesus is our king, see, here's the thing. When Jesus is our Lord, these things come naturally. They come out of a desire and a love. You know, when I, when I and I've said this before, when my daughters have a financial need, at Christmas time we gave them financial gifts because I don't like to shop. <laughs> so we give them a check. And I love to give them money. Do I give to my daughters money and think, oh, joy, do we really have to? This is so hard. I feel, I feel, why did I ever become a dad? What an awful obligation this is. No, I never feel that way. It's a joy to have enough to bless them with something. You know what? Jesus is my Lord. He is my, God is my heavenly Father. I love to give to him. I love to provide for him. I love to provide for his work. Investing, when he says, sell all your possessions. I love the way uh, Charles Finney talks about, Charles Finney talks about these uh, finances. He doesn't say, he will take all your possessions. Charles Finney says, he will take the ownership of your possessions. And when I understand that God owns all that I have because he is my king, well, God... It's yours, so help yourself. Whatever you need, Lord, it's yours anyways. I don't own it. Lord, you own it. I offer it to you. And I like to challenge you. You know, this last year, getting more specific, at the close of the year, we're by, behind by $150,000. This is not just an ad. This is a challenge for those of us who have been blessed by God. And we have a heart that says, Lord, I love you, and you've blessed me. And I've got excess. I can make an extra gift that allows the needs to be met because you are my king. And I want to give to the kingdom that you've set before me. To whatever degree that puts something on your heart, we invite you to participate in this kingdom living where we take all of our possessions and give them to the Lord and he takes as he pleases because I enjoy giving to my family. Spiritual family and literal family. It's a blessing to be able to do that. So we invite you to do that. And then finally, we don't have time to get into it. We're going to be talking about this next week. But we need to be warned that God sometimes gives us what we want but not what we need. This is the challenge. And I'm going to get into this next week. But Deuteronomy 17 says, look, they're going to ask for a king. But here are the criterion that they need to have when they have a king. And and they fail it. They fail it terribly. And so we need to be careful that sometimes what we want is not what we need. 
They wanted a king on earth like Saul, but they needed a king like God in heaven to rule over their lives. So I encourage you as we come before the Lord and this time as we receive our offering, I just want to ask you to pray about the financial opportunities that we have here, the investment to ministry to people's lives. And if God puts it on your heart, He has blessed and provided for you in a way that allows you to make an extra thank you, Lord, gift, we would appreciate that. If you can't do that, God bless you anyways, because I want to live according to what Jesus says. Don't worry about anything, because I've got it all. You seek me, and I'll take care of you. So I believe that individually. I believe that for the church. So we invite you to be part of the kingdom where Christ is king. And the encumbrances and the sins that entangle and the futile things that have no profit, we begin to push them aside as we seek to do the God's will. Let me pray for us to receive our offering. Father God, we thank you that we can look to you for this time. Father, I pray that we walk with you. I pray that you are our Lord. And God, for those of us who maybe are in the midst of an encumbrance or a sin that entangles or futile things that have no profit, that you would reveal that to them. And Lord, that they would turn from those things and they would fix their eyes on Jesus and seek after his kingdom and let the kingdom values be the guiding force in their lives. That we would live according to a higher value and a higher investment, an investment that is eternal in nature and that what we acquire and what we are given are for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for the privilege to be serving you and the text of Scripture that we can learn from the bad things of the Old Testament so we can do the good things that you call us to do today. So thank you for this offering. Thank you for the gracious gifts of so many who have been faithful to you, we know, week after week. God, thank you for that. And we commit it all to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.